Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination, with your host, Paula Granquist, is brought to you by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts. And now, Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. 95 point. Good morning, this is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. Thank you so much for tuning into the show that celebrates creating and stories. And we are going to have a show that I'm so excited to bring to you today. And I'm going to start by bringing back a topic I brought up a few weeks ago, because this keeps swirling around in my mind, and I'm, I'm still trying to crystallize what this is. And the question I've been asking myself is how stories are carried through time. You know, I, I talked about the idea that maybe there's this imagination code, like a DNA that travels the universe and helps stories become a part of our human history. And I know what I've got written is kind of clunky, so bear with me, but we're going to get to figure this out because it's so fascinating to me how some stories get carried on and some stories get lost and some stories come back and some stories get expanded. It's just really interesting how stories stay with us and you know, how some stories disappear. So this process of carrying through time really intrigues me. And, you know, I think about how it's both the stories that we create that in the now that we want to carry forward in the future and the stories that have come with us from the past. So there's all these moving pieces. And I'm kind of pondering how that process works. And also thinking of what happens now, when we have so many new technologies and we are able to create stories and data at a pace that's like nothing else, how are we possibly going to sort through that when everything is digitized and posted out on the internet? And with all this information, we're going to have to come up with new ways to sort and store and value and retell our stories. All those data points make us make me think about the future historians and what the heck are they going to do to sort through all of those pieces. And it you know, also might change how we investigate the stories. How do we know what's truth when there's so many different versions and when we can't help this this has been a problem I suppose for historians for a long time. You know, we wear the lens of our current experience and it's hard to go back to when there were times when they didn't know the things that we know today. So I know that stories are swirling around us everywhere we go. And with all this information being generated in the present, we'll have to have the inclination to reflect. And and will we have the inclination? If there's so much being created, we can't keep up with that. Well, we want to go back and reflect on the meaning of the stories from the past when we can't catch the stories of the day. So sometimes we can feel a little bit overwhelmed by stories. And that happens even when you start looking into a story. You keep finding things and discovering things and sending yourself down some wonderful rabbit holes and even some wild sidetracks. So I am also thinking that maybe this is this is another new thought, that the idea of traveling through these spaces with all these different stories and, and these data resources is maybe that's our closest we'll ever get to time travel. So I'm thinking about that, too. I think that's kind of a cool thing. So there are so many stories. Some of them stay in the past. Maybe it's just one little moment in an everyday life of a single family. Or there's a big story that just doesn't get carried forward because people want to hide it or they uh, don't have enough to 
tell it or aren't sure how to tell it. So how we choose a story to move forward and become a part of the future is fascinating. So I am really excited for that and excited to hear uh, from our guest today because we're going to take a look at one of those stories that might have disappeared had our guest not written his book. So Folks, today on Art Zany Radio, I am joined by Jeff Sove to share the stories about his new true crime book, Murder at Minnesota Point, but it's so much more than a true crime book. I'm going to turn on the mic and, and welcome Jeff to Art Zany Radio. Welcome. Well, good morning, Paula. Thank you for having me. And I think I mispronounced your name, no. Sove. Sove is, is correct. Okay. Yes. Ooh, I, got, I looked at that and had a moment. <laughs> I've had a lot it's of people. mispronounced so many different ways, but yeah, you I nailed would, it. I would think so. And you are here. There's an event tonight, so we want to get that information out for people. Right. I'm really excited that 50 North and the North Hill Historical Society are co-sponsoring an event, a book launch celebration for a murder at Minnesota Point. It takes place at 6.30 this evening, and uh, that's when the doors are open, and we'll have uh, light refreshments, and I'll be selling books. And then at 7.15, there's a, a program, and then it's followed by cake. And, uh, oh, well, <laughs> stay so, for the cake. <laughs> stay for the cake. It's free and open to the public, and it should be, if anything, entertaining. And give people a little more insight into how the book came about and the process of writing. And um, I'll be joined by uh, one of my old friends, uh, Jeff Burton, who's a nationally known mystery writer. That is a real big thrill. And 50 North, I want to give a shout out to them. They always have so many fabulous programs going on. And it's really intriguing to um, see them come back to life a little bit. Right. They're really invigorated in the last year or so, trying to... Uh, let the public know, especially the, the community, that it is a resource. Uh, they offer many classes, and uh, you know it's not just a pool and exercise place. There, it's it's adult learning and um, in an environment that's welcoming. Yeah, and Lynn Peterson came and gave a presentation to the Arts and Culture, Co- Culture Commission this past week and talked about one thing I didn't know was they have an art open studio. And for all of us who, during the pandemic years, thought, yes, this is the time I'm going to take up painting, drawing, you know, knitting, weaving, whatever it is that you do, that you can bring your project and you don't have to be a member to come to their open studio. Right, right. you can just pay a small fee and join in art classes. Um, for instance, yesterday I was walking down the hallway and they have a little art gallery and there was all these beautiful tie dyed indigo, uh, mm. textiles hanging up. And I said, Oh, those are beautiful. Which artist? Oh, those, that wasn't an artist. That was a classroom project. So you never know what you you're going to f- discover. It's right. a very wonderful place. So I'm glad you partnered with them. And I, but I'm most excited about murder at Minnesota point. And this is a story well, first we should tell your story a little bit, because I'm assuming a guest may not know. You You were on with Susan Vistendahl when you did the book about the St. Olaf Band history. Right, yes, uh, the St. Olaf Band history. Uh, it was a comprehensive tome of the St. Olaf Band from, uh, it's over 120 years or so. I love that book, and I that, tell you. <laughs> well, and that book is, uh, uh, just to quickly mention, it'll be on sale during Vintage Band Festival weekend coming up, and uh, discounted by all means graphic. Uh, to $15 a copy. So you don't have to necessarily be interested in, in the history of the St. Old Band. No. It's more about stories, the development of an ensemble that ended up getting world recognition and uh, many first premieres. And little and funny anecdotes. yeah. Right. If you're just <laughs> interested in musical history uh, and how an ensemble moved forward through time. 
or how people used to live and travel and you know uh, discover things about you know our our what's right down the road from us right and you know and northfield had a lot to do with the early days of the band so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so we want to give a plug to that as well but a little bit about you you were the um archivist at saint olaf college for almost 20 years right um that's probably where most people know me from I, i was archivist from 1999 to 2018 and for those that don't know what an archivist is, I was in charge of the institutional memory. So I was the record keeper, the storyteller. And uh, I enjoyed my job immensely. But by the time 2018 rolled around, I thought, well, I've done 20 years. I did a self-check and thought, you know what? What do I love more than anything? Telling stories, writing, sharing. And I thought, you know, I'm going to move on and try a new avenue in my life. And so the intent was actually to write Murder at Minnesota Point. But once I left St. Olaf, people became aware I was available. And so for the next few years, I was working on various grant projects and and other books. I ended up publishing the history of the St. Olaf Theater Department, um, history of Valley Grove Church. Yes, which uh, you helped introduce me to that place, too. And... I just uh, we've been I've been out there several times. Yeah, it's a big plug for Valley Grove Church. If you haven't been out there, drive out there. There's uh, lands you can walk on, uh, and there's a big fall festival coming up, Country Social in September. And I ended up working with the Minnesota Historical Society. They have a website called Miniopedia, which is an encyclopedia of Minnesota history. And I was uh, commissioned uh, with the uh, min- excuse me with Rice County Historical Society to do this grant where we documented 12 interesting stories from the Nurse Strand area. Ooh. So for those, uh, you know, the Nurse Strand, oh, there can't be much history there. Well, <laughs> certainly there is. There's, you know, the Veblen family and Valley Grove Church and the State Park. And so you can just go online and, and search Miniopedia for uh, a myriad of topics. Yeah, and I discovered that in preparing for this show, and it was like a, this wonderful resource I had not known about. And you can really... You know, you you will learn because right. there's something at every click. So, for me, I was I was just busy, and I, I felt I well, I was sort of sidetracked, but I was keeping busy. But then, uh, you know, when COVID hit, hey, what are you going to do with your time? I was wrapping things up. I was homebound, and I think uh, my dear suffering wife, who had heard this story for ten straight years, basically said, "Hey, shut up or write it." You know, <laughs> so I. Uh, I sat down during COVID and, and wrote this book and, and thought, uh, I'll, f- I'll find a, an avenue for printing it. And uh, How lucky we are that you did, because this book takes us back to 1894. It's hard to even imagine what the world was like then. And it tells the, the true story of this young identified woman who was found slain on the isolated sandy shores of Minnesota Point Duluth. That's the starting point. Right. And... People are saying, well, why did he clue in on that? Why did he want to write a story? And and dovetailing to what you were talking about, how stories come to us and whether they're forgotten or not, this story had been completely forgotten. It was deemed the crime of the century back in 1894. Every major newspaper in the United States was carrying headlines. Uh, The victim, we'll call her Lena. Uh, Lena was indeed found on the shores in Duluth. And... What, what caught my interest, I was doing research uh, in the Norwegian American Historical Association, NAHA, which I was also an archivist, uh, and I was 
researching for someone else and one day I was just flipping through some clippings and it was this clipping that caught my attention. It was from the Duluth News Tribune, August 23, 1894, and it was titled, Is All a Mystery? There's nothing but mystery surrounding the body of a woman found at Oatka Beach yesterday afternoon. The chief of police and the city detectives said last night that they were unable to find any clue that would tend to unravel the mystery. There is no doubt in the mind of the authorities that the woman, whoever she may be, was murdered. Well, I just I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder who did it. And, and you I, can't turn away from that. I, but I was busy helping patrons and thought, well, I'll tend to this later and I was an easy find. I'll figure it out. And so at lunchtime, I sat down and started keywording in. I was fortunate at St. Olaf that the library has multiple digital libraries and newspapers that you can dig into. And as an historian and college archivist, uh, you know, I had a special <laughs> in. And so I thought, well, okay, at lunch, I'll figure this out. <laughs> well, Lena, as I soon discovered, was... No one knew who she was. She wasn't local. They displayed her in the city morgue for two weeks. Yeah, that part really fascinated me because I'm imagining um, she she was found shortly after they they ex- suspected shortly after she'd been murdered. Right. And then they they needed to figure out who she was. And back then you wouldn't have had you know uh, ways of no they certainly scanning weren't doing- or looking at any they just who knows her and so that was their way of saying come help us figure this out folks it really was a circus because it's it's mid-august it's hot and she's in this you know displayed uh for crowds and literally they said you know hundreds upon hundreds of people were going to the morgue to, to see if they could identify her um you know, a lot of gossiping and whispering. And, but people in Duluth were also fearful that the murder was amongst them mm-hmm. and that he might strike again. Um, it was fascinating because in the 25 years leading up to this murder, there had been over 70 murders in Duluth. Um, but she was the only woman that was unidentified. And so this, and obviously as a female being murdered in their town's city limits, Uh, That was uh, disconcerting, to say the least. And so it took two weeks to kind of figure out, well, who is she? And they couldn't figure it out. No, they didn't. So they said, well, we'll we'll end up burying. They buried her in a pauper's grave field. And the city detective, Bob Benson, said, well, I'm not going to quite give up on this yet. Um, They had taken post-mortem photographs, and from there... The search began. And they had, yeah, her art, her, the things that were found around right, her. Right, her personal effects, her jewelry and whatever. Mm-hmm. So they, they had that. Uh, Detective Benson said, well, if she's not from Duluth and no one can identify her, then we have to widen the search. And Well, let's talk about Duluth at that time. Right. Because it was 1894, and it's, you know, I was surprised from your, your book to learn a little bit about how this was kind of a hotspot, if you will. It was people came to Duluth uh, because it, there was a lot happening with, you know, mining and timber and all kinds of, you know, things come together at that port. Right. You wouldn't think it was just a sleepy little village. Um, Duluth at that time was uh, called the San Francisco of the Great Lakes. And if you know Duluth, it is one of the great freshwater ports in the world and still sees a lot of traffic uh, with boats coming. But 
Back in the 1880s and 90s, you know, train traffic was developed extensively. There were six different railroads that were coming into Duluth. Uh, so you had numerous people daily traveling up there for business. Also, there was a uh, transportation uh, tourist industry running from Buffalo, New York to Duluth. You would take these cruises. So a lot of people thought, you know, let's go to the West. That's how you would come through the Great Lakes. So you had a lot of, uh, you know, visitors. That would, I can't imagine what that travel would have been like back then and what kind of comfort they would have had on those boats or how long it would have taken. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. That would be another book. But So, you know, you have to think 1894. This is the Gilded Age. This is America. You know, all of a sudden we're, we're being industrialized. Money is flowing in. There's the nouveau rich. Uh, Duluth was no exception. There were mining lumber barons. Uh, mm -hmm. They were, of course, shipping out all sorts of things from the port. Uh, so Duluth itself, the city's being carved out of the rocks, uh, had grown to over 60,000 people by 1895. So it was a burgeoning village that had now become a big city. Uh, and with big cities comes crime. Down on the wharves, there were, I think, more than 50 uh, brothels and and there numerous places where you could buy liquor because they didn't re they didn't apply for a municipal liquor license and so you had kind of uh, a wild miners loggers sailors coming in it was a wild time so you there was an unseen element of evil that was lurking crime was constantly happening uh, happening and the you know, so you have these beautiful lawns and, and mansions all throughout the Duluth Hills, but there's a, <laughs> there's a darker side to town. Yeah, and let's talk about this beach. Now t remind, tell me. Oatka Beach. Say yeah. how you say it again. Oatka. Oatka, okay. Yeah. It's got, it's a um, Ojibwe it's a, name. Well, they, online everyone says it's Ojibwe, but my research shows it's more likely Seneca. And the reason that is, I was actually um, visiting grand marais michigan the other day and there's beaches up there called Oatka, and there was a man commodore inman who ran a tugboat industry in duluth at this time had bought a tug from michigan in the grand marais area and he was thinking of building a development on minnesota point to attract tourists and on his tug was a little card that mentioned Oatka, michigan and so he thought well, i'll name the beach that so in 1889, he developed Minnesota Point as a tourist attraction. But to get there, you would have to ride his tug. Um, and, and or kind his of an little in, boat ingenious ferries, little yeah. businessman yes, there. Yeah, he was. And, and that also was interesting was the, that strip of land, that sandbar, I did not realize that is the world's largest. Right. It is, without a doubt, Minnesota Point is the world's largest freshwater spit, almost seven miles long. The sandy bar, and I think actually right now, uh, citizens that live on there, uh, they're having issues with erosion. And so they're trying to figure out how do we maintain the point without losing uh, the land. Is it so I just made this connection. A friend of mine has a house up there, and they just put their house on stilts. I wonder if that's <laughs> right. where she is. Interesting. Right. So I know the, the um, I'm not sure which agency, is it the Coast Guard or... An engineers group, but they're they're actually trying to figure out how we can keep the point from eroding even further. So, yeah, you can go online, I'm sure, and find it, stories on that. But you have to think about the point and how it had developed. Of course, uh, um, 
the Ojibwe did live on the point during the summer months. Um, it was really undeveloped. There were some homes and tracks. Uh, after the canal was built through in 1871, and then eventually the lift bridge wasn't built till the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could at least go there and enjoy the beaches. So it, it always was a popular tourist place in the early 19th century. One of my favorite pictures in your book is the picnic on that uh, on Minnesota Point. And, you know, the, the woman is like in this, you know, a long black dress with this fancy hat and a bustle and, you know, the whole... I think, wow, that is, you know, they're building a bonfire, and it just does not look comfortable. But that right. that was picnicking, right? Picnicking, yeah. Picnicking was uh, maybe going out, and if you dabbled your your uh, naked toes in the water, that was risque enough for people. Wasn't there but no, something? they did boat, and there was a lot of water activity. And wasn't there something in here? Because I, I zipped through this, so there's a lot of detail, but it's a great story that pulls you in. Yeah, about renting bathing suits. Right. You, know, you could rent. <laughs> yeah. they were, of course, there were bathhouses, and you could go and rent a bathing suit for five cents or ten cents. I forget the distinction. I suppose for adults or children. I but, wonder what those look like. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they would run advertisements in 1895 to say, you know, we cater to all classes. Uh, the beach was really a. Uh, a democratic situation where everyone was welcome. I even found clippings where they said people of color had a picnic. And so it's just, it was a small little note, but it was. I enjoyed finding that because it, it reaffirmed to me that this this beach and everyone who goes up to Minnesota Point, if you, if you cross the, the lift bridge and there's this beautiful long beach along the side, that... It was a wonderful place to convene, have church picnics, have family gatherings, mm-hmm. and everyone was going there of every class, uh, the rich and the poor. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where her body was found. Right. Now, it should be, I should claim this. Now, Oatka Beach at that time was actually on the Bay Side, St. Louis oh. Bay Side, uh, due to the, the more calmness of the water and whatever, and they developed that side. Uh, right now, we all think Oatka Beach is the big, long, sandy dune side on Lake Superior. But right, so her body was found on August twenty-second by a little, a little boy about ten years old who was sent out that morning to find firewood. Mm. And uh, may may I should read this? The sure, opening. Would that, that would be, be right? wonderful. That would be so, great, folks. I'll remind you, this is Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. I'm here with Jeff Sauve, and we're talking about his. Murder at Miss Minnesota Point, and the launch event for this book is tonight, Friday, the 15th of July, 2022. So if you're listening to this on the rebroadcast, you can look for future events or find the book down here at, uh, it's available at the Northfield Historical Society, the Rice County Historical Society, and Content Bookstore, online in a number of places, so folks can find a copy, and I'm sure there'll be upcoming events in the fall, so look for those. So this is... Um, Jeff reading from Murder at Minnesota Point. Thank you, Paul. Chapter 1, A Body Found. Excuse me. Wednesday, August 22nd, 1894. Guy Browning, age 7, stood on Duluth Oatka Beach, his heart pounding. Ahead of him on the deserted sandy ribbon of shoreline, driftwood lay heaped like a pile of bleached bones. A motionless hand protruded from the watery debris, 
reaching out in vain. Around a slight wrist, a silver bracelet glinted in the mid-morning sun. Slowly he turned his head in the direction of the dunes, wary of meeting unwanted evil eyes. A seagull screeched startled Browning, sending him racing more than half a mile to home. His bare feet dug hard in the wet sand, leaving small footprints soon lost forever. As he neared his house, gasping for breath, the boy yelled for his mother, Mary, who immediately reported the matter to the police. From that moment on, the mystery of the dead woman's grim demise captured the nation's attention. And that's how fabulous the whole book reads. It's just like this, you know, you want to know what happened and you get to learn. I think one of the most fascinating things was that insight into police detective work back then. (laughs) Right. Thank you, Paul. You know, I had at the very beginning when I was considering writing this book, I wrote up a a draft of a chapter so and sent it to 20 readers and just asked them to comment on uh, what I had sent them, but also, you know, what am I missing? What should I uh, flesh out? Mm-hmm. And a couple of the readers said, you know, explain what detective work was like. What was, what was it like to be a police officer? How did they solve crimes? You know, obviously nowadays on television and whatnot, crime shows are so popular and, and sleuthing out the details and how do you get to the criminal and so I, you know I was I was ignorant and thought how do you how do you look into this well Duluth only had two detectives on staff and uh, they weren't trained uh, detective Bob Benson came from Michigan he had actually worked in the lumber yards before somehow he ended up on the police force uh, he he never received any real training and he and his partner, Tom Hayden, uh, they only had to rely upon what they call the rogues gallery. This was the only yeah. means. And people say, what is a rogues that gallery? That was fascinating. It was simply, if you were a criminal caught in whatever act, and, and the police would create a document, you know, they would describe your physical looks and, and any distinguishing marks on your body, a mole under his chin or a cut on his wrist. And then they would take a photograph of you. Right, and that was probably the big development in, you know, crime solving was the invention of photography. Right, and ph- photography at this point was just developing. You know, we had gone from daguerreotypes of the 1860s to, uh, you know, cabinet cars of the 1880s. and But now by the 1890s, you could take an image and somehow transfer it on the wires to newspapers throughout the United States. And so it was creating a metadata, what we would use now. And so they were creating metadata document of this criminal in their image, and then they would send prints of the photographs to all the major city uh, police stations. And so they created filing cabinets, a rogues gallery. So if you were interested in a a pickpocket, you would go, I'm sure they had it alphabetized, (laughs) you'd go to pickpockets and say, here's the 12, you know, like a lineup. Here's your lineup. Uh, And that's probably an outcropping from wanted posters or something, right? Right, and wanted posters. In this particular case with uh, the criminal that they're seeking for her murder, um, they they just created wanted posters and they sent them all over the United States. And I was fortunate enough to actually get a hold of one of the wanted posters and the description they used of this killer. And, you know, he was a uh, described in such a lurid way, you know, it just went on forever. And I thought, 
Well, how are people really going to know? Because they didn't even have an image of him on the wanted poster, you know. Uh, and I thought it was interesting, too, that they, um, even even with the description, I mean, they didn't have a way of really narrowing it down. So you had mustache or something like that. And, and most men back then would have <laughs> similar, you know, mutton chop whiskers and a, a, a floppy mustache. And he was tall. Right. He could have been in his 40s. And so, and but you could have an alias. I mean, criminals would, you know, change their names all the time and report to the officer. Well, my name is, you know, Tom Dixon. Well, last week it was Tom <laughs> Jones. And interestingly, and what I found amusing was once this murder took place and then it received the county attention, we got to find who murdered this woman. The county offered a $250 reward, and then the governor of Minnesota said the state will offer $250, so a $500 reward. Now, what's fascinating about that is, well, that, that was a lot of money back I was going to say, how would you uh, translate that to, to well, today's dollars? Uh, probably about $6,000. Okay, so it's substantial. Not... And, but interestingly, detectives back then... Whoever solved the crime, we get to keep the money. Even so, the policemen. Even the policemen. So that's what I found why this case took almost three years to resolve itself was the fact that no one was helping each other. The Duluth police detectives were like, hey, if we capture the fellow, we get the money. Even though most likely the victim probably originated from Minneapolis, the Minneapolis police were not interested in really helping the Duluth police. And so they were at odd ends with each other on, you know, moving this case forward. And there were over 20 suspects during this <laughs> coming. And the book actually kind of starts going into some of the suspects. And, and you know, was it a dead end? Move on to the next suspect. But And uh, the lengths they had to go to, to eliminate that person as a, uh, you know, person of interest, if you will, uh, you know, the traveling, the time it took to get places. Right. I mean, they didn't, you know, have video cameras. They could just say, you know, does this look like your guy? Right. They and would write a letter and say, this right. is you what our guy looks like. And you, you didn't call. So you would get on a train and mm -hmm. then, and then uh, you would come back with a photograph of the, uh, uh, you know, incarcerated fellow in uh, Ohio, say, and, and then go to the people in Minneapolis and say, does <laughs> Does this look like the guy who did her in? You know, yeah, that was fascinating, and there's so much of of that process. But I also enjoyed learning a little bit about the woman who was murdered, and you uncover some of her story in this as well. And that's really for you the driving force of the reason you wanted to keep doing this, right? Um, you know, when people ask, well. What was the driving force? What what compelled you really to tell the story? I mean, true crime stories are found everywhere nowadays as the genre is incredibly popular. But for me, it was in the early days when I was researching it and I was, you know, like I said earlier, spending my lunch breaks or, you know, after work digging into it. I was trying to unravel the story. And I thought what was going to be an easy story to tell wasn't. And... But then I started having a lot of nightmares, and mm. it became an unhealthy obsession. And, and I had friends and family said, put this away. And I couldn't really, at that point, diagnose myself. Why was I experiencing all this? 
I did put it away for a long time until I was, it was probably in the summer of 2018. I was in Duluth and I was up in Inger Tower, which is this five story um, brick edifice that overlooks the, the harbor. Well it's worth a, a visit. Well worth a visit on Skyline Parkway. And I was pointing my, to my wife, well, there's Minnesota Point and there's where the Mer and she's like, well, I thought you'd kind of drop that. And I, I said, well, I just thought I'd tell you a little more. Well, then when I mentioned murder, there was a, another couple standing on the observation deck and they're like, murder, murder. <laughs> and I started explaining, you know, I had been once involved in this storyline. I was thinking of telling. And then pretty soon I had 12 people listening and and I ended up finishing the story and everyone's like, well, where's the book? When can we get the book? And I'm like, I haven't written the book. And so then on the way home, my wife said, you know, you, you seem like you rather enjoyed telling that story again. I thought we agreed that maybe it wasn't the right story for you to tell. And, and I said, well, I think maybe I should, you know, revisit it. And she said, well, I think before you do that, you should revisit, find her grave. Now, this is the crux of partly telling the story. I always felt that I didn't know enough about the victim and I needed to make a connection, a physical connection. There has to be some intimacy when you tell a story. Right, because it's her story. It's her story. And she had been completely forgotten. As I mentioned, this was the crime of the century and it was touted in newspapers for more than 36 months. Mm. Um, but then once it was sort of, you know... It came to its finalization, and, and that was that. If you buy the book, you'll find out how it happened. But I thought, you know, she was forgotten. She was actually uh, exhumed in Duluth and then reinterred once she was identified in another pauper's grave in Minneapolis. It said in a Swedish cemetery. So driving home, Evelyn said, I think you need to, to go to her, find her, and talk to her. And you might resolve some of your own issues and um, maybe why you were having nightmares to begin with. And I said, well, that's better said than done. How can I find <laughs> she, you know, I'm the historian here, but she said, well, you know, new things are always being digitized. New stories are always cropping up. And she was right. I did find a clipping that had been recently digitized that she was burying Lakewood Cemetery. And so we went up on a beautiful fall day in 2018 and, you know, the, the lawn was covered with, you know, crimson and golden leaves, and it was just glorious. But I was a, there was some trepidation because I knew I was going to have to face, face these nightmares that I was having, face why I wanted to tell this story, and what was the underlying factor. And we wandered around. I knew she was buried in, you know, Section 11, Row 12, Gravesite <laughs> 8, but, you know, there's not markers, and she doesn't have a marker we wandered around for quite some time and then a security guard pulled up and this kind of questioning look like oh why are you folks wandering around so much and i said well i'm trying to find this gravesite." and he said well did you check our app <laughs> now if you haven't been to lakewood cemetery it's a beautiful extensive grounds with i think twelve thousand uh, individuals buried there so my wife plugged in the app and right away these little like little footsteps guided us right to her right to lena's site and Evelyn said, I think you need time. And I'll mention tonight how cathartic this was to, to stand there, to mm -hmm. ask questions, to figure out things. And 
The only other gravesite I regularly visited was my older brother Steve's. He had died in a car incident when uh, he was 18 and I was 17. Mm. It was the first time my parents had gone on vacation and left us children alone. And so I was the eldest then, and I had to deal with this, losing my brother and having to tell my parents when they came home from vacation because I couldn't reach them. Oh, my goodness. And it was so traumatic, and the grief was so strong. And our family, you know, back then... I shouldn't generalize, but I don't think people dealt with grief in the same manner as we would now. And Mm -hmm. we kind of put it away and didn't want to deal with it. And I think that's what I finally started to realize after visiting Lena's grave, that I hadn't dealt with my own grief and my own loss and that I felt my brother had been forgotten. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it still brings back a few tears to think about how we think of people, and that no one should be forgotten. Everyone has worth. Uh, this victim had worth. She, you know, she didn't come from any means. She was a domestic servant working in, in a wealthy mansion, and she came from a Norwegian background. She didn't have the pedigree. She didn't have the education, but she was still a person of worth. And she was human to the core. She wanted to be loved and that was all taken away from her. And I, for my own sake, for my brother, who was taken away from me, it finally hit me. And I felt I could breathe again, that I, I could tell this story. And I walked away from the cemetery that day. Whew. The story's there, and I'm going to tell it. And I didn't, ever, I didn't have a, a nightmare afterwards. Oh, that part I didn't. I don't think was in the book. No, I That's... didn't. Uh, they went away, and so you know, people ask me, "Well, you know, okay, so you were compelled. Now you wrote the book. Obviously, I didn't go in it for monetary reasons. I, I think a storyteller, you just like the act of writing, of telling the story. You're not worried so much about, you know, the results and how it, uh, if it sells, you know. And I thought. I will use some of the proceeds to buy her a headstone. She will not be forgotten. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping to do that. And there's a, a, a retired pastor in town who said, Jeff, I'll be there to do the graveside ceremony. And so I'm hoping to coordinate that this fall. But How fabulous. Yeah. And that is, it's so fascinating to think, you know, I was talking at the beginning about the stories that sort of swirl around and how that story found you and you know you had no idea that that first time you ran across the article <laughs> that that would connect to you in any way right and that it would help heal it is a journey yeah and, uh, i think any writer will tell you that when you start out with a project the ending is never quite what you imagined and you you're learning as well what can you gain from this um if you're just going to simply tell the story that's that's um that's not invigorating for a writer. You have to dig deep and, and expose yourself and be honest with yourself um, and be truthful. I think a, a good writer has to be truthful with their audience and expose himself. And, and, and it's raw sometimes. This mm-hmm. book is raw. There are, there's violence, and it's, it's the story of how we manipulate others. And last week, someone told me after they read my book, they had a nightmare that night. And she mm-hmm. called me the next day. And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, well, because it was so true. 
her son was having an experience with his girlfriend, how she was manipulating him, and it, it got kind of ugly. And she said, what you wrote about the same human relationships are happening right now. Yeah, I found that interesting too, right? That that the uh, dramas of, of dating or uh, wanting status or, um, you know, t- trying to figure out who the person in front of you is and what's the truth and um, that all of that is a part that, that was, I can't do the math real fast. We're talking over uh, 125 years yeah. and there's a lot, some of the, those human, human elements, which is, I think, what makes it such a great book, too, right? Because it's not just the facts and the gory. It's the, you know, these characters. They come to life. They, well, you know, well, thank you. Yeah, it's really fascinating how um, you, you tell us the history of each of these and kind of the path they chose. They all make different choices. And as a, as a writer, I didn't want to just create a narrative of, okay, this is chapter one, chapter two, and you walk through the crime and get there. I ended up adding sidebars in the book that sort of illuminate the reader on specific topics. For instance, the the chief of police in Duluth liked to have a museum of the macabre oh, yeah, that was artifacts from crimes. And so I ended up writing about one of the and artifacts. And that was real, right? That was real, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I have extensive notes in the back of the book. And as a researcher and historian, that, that's probably my favorite part to do. I, you want to add a little bit of the storyline that may not be germane necessarily to the text. But, for instance, in Duluth, when I was researching the detectives, you mentioned earlier, tells a little bit more about the police force. On staff in the 1890s was a young African-American man, Henry Threadcroft. And I believe he was certainly one of the first three men of color in all of Minnesota as an officer and what Henry went through and what was expected of him and no one in Duluth has ever mentioned this it's been as far as I know undocumented so as you start to reveal a story you end up finding new nuggets and and it just keeps well as you mentioned earlier it's a rabbit hole you go down and you keep unearthing new material and fascinating sideline topics and so henry is probably worth a book too i i would imagine there's a big story behind that although it might be very difficult to find those details to create the whole story and i thought it was really interesting and that that's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves nowadays who's telling the story and are we collecting all the stories that tell the whole truth and in this one one of the interesting elements was that a lot of people wrote in the newspaper about their, you know, because this had such national attention, all the people wanted to tell, this is, you know, this is what I did. And you found that some of those accounts were a little exaggerated or maybe not quite. (laughs) Right. Well, and that's how the news back then was disseminated. Uh, You had three newspapers in Duluth at the time. three. Three. And, uh, you know, they would have their stories on this murder and they perpetuated it because it was selling copies. And then, it would, these stories would be wired onto other newspapers and then their own writers and in, say Indianapolis would reinvent the story, <laughs> maybe add a few more details or, and so it, it kept getting muted and, and, and transformed into wild outlandish tales. And so I, and we can relate writer, to that now, right? Yeah, the the yeah. way that stories take off and take on a life. <laughs> and so they did end up taking on a life. So 
as an historian, I had to balance where did the story originate and and is this accurate and you know i didn't have a lot of material to go with in the early days i was fortunate that one of my former colleagues at st elf college amy brown who's now the archivist at umd uh, she'd gone up there she said oh we have a sort of you know catalog of our archives they also have the um archives of the regional uh, i'm not sure regional history center but uh, they have like the police records and whatnot of duluth and so I, I found online on the catalog, it said they have a scrapbook from the 1890s, all it said. So Amy invited me to come up to Duluth and look at their police records. And they, you know, I sat down at the table, and they hauled out this scrapbook, and it was almost entirely devoted to this murder. Wow, what a treasure find. It was, <laughs> and it actually had a picture of the victim before she, she was killed. Uh, a life picture. All the pictures I had of the victim were post-mortem mm. and grotesque things. And so I'm like, wow, you can see that she she existed, she was human, she was beautiful. And so it was, I was enthralled. I was sitting there going through the scrapbook and, and other police records. And then as I, I delved into more uh, material and started finding out who this killer was, you know, I'm tracing him back to his childhood when he lived in New York. So I contacted this small town in New York. And right away, the archivist at the library said, oh, I know all about that family. And she and I became good friends. <laughs> she was sending me photos and, and, and scans of obituaries and indexes of the family. They had an entire clipping file of this family that I was writing about. And then the killer ended up going to Kansas, where, believe it or not, I'll say this, he became a law officer. Hmm. And so I was able to work with their historical society. And then he migrates to Tacoma. And I was able to work with that historical society. So the story became a national story as I was researching and digging more and more. And there was a lot of hidden stories. And I'm sure there's still much more to unearth if I would continue to do so. Well, and one of the things we have now is all those data points, and there's so much. So what advice would you give to somebody who's um, you know, interested in a story, whether it be just a family story or you know, a, a news story that they want to learn more about, how to navigate and know that you're getting quality information? Excellent question. Um, well, for myself, I was I wanted to be exhaustive in my research, and you know, turn every rock over as a as an individual. Say you're a novice writer or family historian or researcher, and you you want to get to the kernel. There are there are certain things you can go to. Like if you're in Minnesota, there's the Minnesota Newspaper Index through the Minnesota Historical Society, and they've they've digitized hundreds of uh, local newspapers. So those that's a great resource. Um, check with your local uh, librarian, reference mm -hmm. librarian. Uh, you should be looking at census records. You should be looking at uh, histories of the community. Uh, it wasn't uncommon right around the turn of the century to have early county histories. Uh, we have one for Rice County, and, uh, and there's one for Dakota County and Goodhue County. And I've used these, and a lot of them have been digitized. So if you want to find out about your great-grandfather, if they were... You know, of any note, they would be written up in these county histories. Um, 
So there are, there are avenues, but your reference librarian can definitely help you. Here in Northfield, we, we are fortunate that we have a stellar historical society uh, with vast archives and resources. So And three libraries, the St. Olaf Carlton and the Northfield and Library. Right, and, and in each place they, they have extensive uh, collections and archives. And so what you find when you start researching, you're going to hit on one thing, and then that's going to lead you to the next. And this is the rabbit hole of writing, you know, you... You keep unearthing new material, and uh, there's a lot of professionals in the area that are they're more than willing to help and, mm-hmm. and guide you because they're knowledgeable about, oh, yeah, yeah, did you consider this? Um, that, yeah, that's good. Just keep asking those questions and probably um, centering your story so that you know uh, what is at the core of your story <clears throat> so that you can, because you can get pulled in so many directions and just end up doing research instead of actually writing or <laughs> finishing. <laughs> well, right. You know, I, I, whenever I was tutoring uh, St. Olaf students uh, with history projects, I always, you know, said, frame your story and, and keep it focused. You can you can get sidetracked and derailed pretty easily by digging into things. But a... a uh, a good way to start is just to say, this is what I want to accomplish. This is what I want to get to. Um, and create the context. Uh, mm. You know, if you want to know why your grandparents moved to Northfield in 1880, well, what drew them? What was Northfield like in 1880, 1890? Um, were they Irish immigrants? Why, why were they? Why did they leave Ireland? You mm-hmm. know, was the potato famines of the 1850s that pushed them? There were a lot of colonization, I would say. To, uh, my own ancestors were Irish immigrants who were informed that the you know Archbishop Ireland of St. Paul was encouraging the Irish to come to Minnesota. They were creating these colonies. And so when you wonder why there are communities like New Ulm or mm-hmm. uh, all Germans, it was because they wanted like-minded, like-cultured people to come and, you know, you could share the same language. And so find out why your community welcomed you, your ancestors. Yeah, and that, that, that context is so important, telling the, the larger story. Mm-hmm. No, it's fascinating to be able to do. And you have created such a, a readable and a fascinating and, you know, truthful, right? This is all, all based in right. actual historical facts, right. but it reads like a great, thriller right <laughs> well uh, thank you yeah you know i tried to compose the book in a, in a manner that is a mystery until like chapter four it, you know, it takes each chapter builds on the next i mean a, a good mystery shouldn't be resolved right away and then you backtrack the storyline and i know there are readers out there that love to flip to the final pages to find out the storyline they just can't wait but uh Hopefully, I was I was truthful and honest in all my research, and that uh, I didn't I didn't try to lead the reader in the wrong direction. That uh, I wanted to tell her story, and and bring honor to her life, and I think I did that admirably. Mm-hmm. I would agree that I think uh, a lot of times 
these books forget about the victim and move on to how who did it, you know, right? Mm-hmm. So so quick, and you have have honored her and revealed a little of, you know, I think that the nuggets you shared about her life in Minneapolis. It's like, oh, I wonder what that that that's another story, right? Those boarding houses, those families she worked for, um, you know, some of those details were just equally as engaging and and you know really open your eyes to. It's it's in some ways not that far away from where we are, but in some ways really far. Right. And, you know, you mentioned about time traveling and the elements. <laughs> in my own family life, my mother's um, grandmother, she left Sweden with her sister and uncle. Now, my great-grandmother was only 14 when she left Sweden, never to return. Mm-hmm. And like the majority of uh, European immigrants, women anyways, you would find yourself as a domestic servant. In my case, my great-grandmother was a domestic servant. Mm-hmm. Um, she married uh, a German immigrant, and they never never achieved financial success. Her sister, however, married an up-and-coming banker, mm-hmm. and she had you know uh, a, a lifestyle of wealth and easiness. And I, I just contrast these two. How America of great promise came to one, but not to the other. And so, yes, I think if you dug into your family lines, we, for instance, the other year went on the incident of the Archer House burning down, and I was digging into uh, the early years, and I discovered that if some people in Northfield know Barb Budd, and we discovered her great-grandmother had been an early uh, server, domestic worker at the Archer House in the 1870s, uh, you know, Irish immigrants. And it's history isn't that far removed when you you pull the strings together. And, and every single one of those people has a story, whether they ended up, you know, fulfilling their dreams or just, you know, chugging through every day and making life happen. Right. It's it's a wonderful story. And I'm so thrilled to be able to present this to, to our listeners. The book is Murder at Minnesota Point by Jeffrey. Jeffrey Sove, and this is a book you need to pick up. And you can come tonight on Friday, the 15th of July of 2022 to the... uh, 50 North, which is on Jefferson Parkway in Northfield. And at 6.30, the doors open. 7.15, the official event begins. Copies are going to be available for sale. You can also get them at the Historical Society and the Rice County Historical Society or Content Bookstore can order a copy for you. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating book. We could talk for a a long time. Thank you for sharing. This has been wonderful. I'm delighted. So I want people to hear about this story and share it with all those folks that you know up in Duluth who might be interested. I think there's going to be a lot lot more interest. So thank you for being here today. Folks, this is Art Zaney, Radio for the Imagination. I really hope that you find time to enjoy your imagination, of course, and always remember to add a little bit of Art Zaney to your life. In the meantime, till next time, Enjoy your imagination. You've been listening to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination, with your host, Paula Granquist. Art Zany is brought to you each week by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts in Faribault.